Hello, and welcome to the Fisher Poetry Podcast, a showcase of prose, poetry, and song written and performed by those in the commercial fishing community. Mostly. I'm your host, Brad. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is from the 2023 Fisher Poetry Gathering in Astoria, Oregon. You'll be hearing from Fisher Poets Abigail Calkin of Gustavus, Alaska, Malika Hawkinson of Seattle, Washington, and Dan Kaiser of Chinook, Washington, with introduction by MC Dan Kaiser. This set was recorded at the Liberty Theater on Saturday, February 25th, 2023. So, without further ado, here's the show. Well, welcome aboard, my Fisher Poet friends, and welcome back to the Fisher Poets Gathering here in Astoria, Oregon. Woo! I tell you what, I almost feel like this is a little bit my town, born and raised on the streets of Astoria, walking amongst the blue-collar warriors that once existed here. Now, I'd like to mention just a couple things as far as respect for our readers. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to get up on stage and share a little piece of yourself out here. Um, so once again, you know, just make sure that you show some respect um, for our performers this evening. And I tell you what, if you really take it all in, you will find that the true beauty is in the heart of the performer. Now we're gonna step up and move right forward here with one of our first readers. Unfortunately, we've had a no-show so we're gonna move Abigail right up into the starting lineup. Now, Abigail Calkin was born in Boston and raised in New England and New York's Greenwich Village. After moving to a few other states and living in Scotland, she settled in a very small town in Alaska's bush, Gustavos, Alaska. Now, Abigail is a very accomplished author and she has published a book the Night Orion Fell, the story of a, a disaster and a Coast Guard rescue. She is also a published poet, and she will be presenting this evening. So let's give a warm welcome to Abigail Calkin. I'm shorter than everybody else in the world, practically. Um, the other place I uh, claim hail from is Nova Scotia, where half my family lives. And uh, I'm going back there in October for maybe September to work on a story which will be fiction and historical historical fiction and some nonfiction about my great-grandfather who was a sea captain. Anyway, <clears throat> I have some poems for you tonight. Don't think I have any prose. And uh, this first one has been published in uh, the Northwest Magazine Cirque, C-I-R-Q-U-E, as in Cirque du Soleil. And, uh, but it has nothing to do with Cirque du Soleil. It's just Cirque, Circumpolar North, and it's, you know, 
You shouldn't have favorite children, but it's okay to have favorite writings. And this is one of my favorite poems, Trolling for Words. Now, I need to tell you that if you don't know any Russian at all, the word znayu in Russian means I know. And I use that a few times in this poem. On a winter's day, when sun hovers 22 degrees above early afternoon's horizon, I ponder what words I control. I check lines, fuel, gumby suit, a euphonic word, and temperature, plus 10. I zip my warmest gear, start the engine, leave the river, and turn to sea. When I reach the fairweather grounds, I set my lines and run a slow troll. Znayu. I know the sound, the sound of I know. Znayu. I snap the gear as I run out my line and wait. Drink bitter coffee as we, the boat and I, troll to the west. I hear the bell that says all is well. My hands are warm, waiting inside alpaca, then rubber gloves. I begin to run the gear. The winter's azimuth comes first. A gentle time I shall keep. I throw it on deck to gut and analyze when all the words are in. Am at dockside and home for a soon good sleep. Apricity flops on deck, almost of its own volition. That warmth of winter's low sun against my face. I leave it there, lying warm and silent against the gunwale. Znayu. I quietly know the next one that I take off its hook. I put this one in my pocket to keep my knowledge warm within me as this trip flows in language I know. This double ugly has too many plosives and so little meat. I cannot compare it to the elegance of felicity or homily or mackerel and toss it back. Silence of home, of ocean. How did I get two on one hook? Did they grab the bait at the same time? Or did one eat the other as one lies atop, one below, wedged together as if one? Next flops a fellow, a tough, a fellow tough to take off the hook, a brazen tatteratat, whose front is his back, no back fin on this character, just horned heads on both ends. He's a knockabout on deck, but I'll keep him. I like his shuddering, shattering bang-a-clang. Ah, uh, these lines, do they offer, do they and I offer one another justice? Have I tied them 60 on the deeps or 25 on this inside gear? Do I have load enough to head back from a money-making trip? As I pull my lines, I land one more, a lugubriosity, who reflects my feelings at the end of this or any trip to the sea. That mournful sorrow of leaving my ocean, of water of words, of placing these fish in order, of finding the tender where I offload and sell this morseled miscellany. I am bereft when they are no longer in my hands, and I head home to my long sleep. <clears throat> my son lives in Juneau at 500 feet which isn't much unless 500 feet below is the Gastineau Channel. 
And it's foggy there. I'm sure you're used to fog. I am. So I sat for a week and watched the fog. Fog. Fog rolls, hides, envelops sandy shores, shrouds tops of tall masts. It hides all, rolls like a dragon tail, rills valleys, covers houses, hills, pathways, docks. It hides the mountains, hides the waves, hides boats in the fleet, breaks into clouds below the hillside where I sit, leaves phantom trails, ties bows around vessels, outlines the land, the masts of neighboring ships, till the wraith of wind sweeps it away, turns the sun into a faint, faint, parts to reveal a rainbow, jettisoned from a cloud, parts to reveal sunshine, laces around mountains or boats, to deceive us till all is invisible. Now, one of my favorite people in the world has been Odysseus since I was 11 years old when I read the Iliad and the Odyssey. So I thought I'd write a poem about him. And so it was he plied the ancient waves, each wave's new yet older than any fish or Earth's millennial measured eons. Born of Ithaca, young Odysseus fought in battle for his Grecian isle. Ten years he fought on land across the strait. Ten years he journeyed the short leagues of sea to hallucinate and hammer away long angers instilled by brutal battles. Battles may be short, perhaps just moments, but their residue may last three lifetimes. Odysseus journeyed home and only Argos, his old dog, recognized his scent, a scent not washed away in blue-green seas, a scent his son, so human, did not know. <clears throat> now, I know when you're married, you're not supposed to fall in love with someone else, but uh, given that I've probably fallen in love maybe 15 times in my life, I don't know, a dozen, you know, whatever, um, I have fallen in love with a very ancient fish. And this is the first poem that I am writing about this fellow. And he's absolutely amazing. I wish I could deep sea dive so I could go down. There's a video on YouTube of some fellow just stroking him as he swam by. And I thought, oh, I want to be there and do that. Coelacanth. Coelacanth is a fish whose ancestors lived 420 million years ago. Now, I don't know whether how many of you are familiar with Oklahoma or the Wichita Mountains that are in Oklahoma, but they, were the old, they are the oldest mountains in North America, and they were formed over 400 million years ago. So, around the time 
the coelacanth was also fishing around, um, swimming around. It still lives at the ocean's bottom, mostly in caves. It was considered only a fossil until 1938, when a trawler caught one off the coast of South Africa. He contacted a natural history museum curator. I, coelacanth, was born from magma spewed, spewn from ocean's yellow belly, a home for fish you will never catch or see, a home to those who live and die. I lived when the dinosaurs lived and hid well in caves at the ocean's bottom for 400 million years. I was a mere fossil until 1938 when a South African fisherman brought me to Marjorie Courtney Latimer. She cared for my six foot, 200 pound, dead, white speckled, mauve blue body with two pairs of walkable fins with bones and a puppy-like tail. Some scientists think I may be the first fish to move out of land on, out of sea onto land. I don't know, but if I did not, my birthed and bone-finned ancestors, excuse me, my birthed and bone-finned descendants did. Trawl nets now entangle my back, drag me crying in silent shock to hear me gasp in shallow waters. No one will find me at a fishmonger's. I warn you, I am too oily, foul-tasting, and will give you two days of black water. Soon, you will study me with fascination. So we spoke. I am, I am coelacanth. You say you have seen me. Want to hold me in your hands? Yes, I do, and I don't want to let you go, I say to an eye or a scale. I want to hold you, curtained of night, exposed to day. Shall I put you in the galley, wheelhouse, or back in the ocean? Shall I save you for my desk at home, a trophy of life's beginnings? It answered, I am alien, prehistoric, one of the 24% who survived the asteroid. Now, saved by you, a random curious fisherman, you'll put me on a shelf in your library Sit me with your pride in peace on our planet. I miss the depths of my former life, but it is my, it is my fate that trawler Captain Goosen pulled me from my environment and plucked me to his deck to preserve me for a laboratory shelf. With his net, he reached back through time and brought me to your knowledge. You now label me and my 500 immediate relatives as critically endangered. This one is titled, Silence on an Early Fall Day. 
When I was introduced, it was said I live in a small town in Alaska, which is true. So I can go for a walk on the road, which goes nowhere other than in town, or to the national park. And I can walk there and see no one, hear no one, sometimes not even an animal or a bird in the winter. So, this one starts with some silence. I walk in the park, hear no footsteps, no sound, no wind, no waves, no rain, see no clouds, no sun, no bear paws or moose hooves land on autumn's newly fallen leaves. I see no porcupine, mink, or muskrat, no fish move upstream to spawn. Fingerlings still head out to sea for three to five years before returning to their spawning. I smell the late blooming flowers of changing plants. Fleabane, hyacinth, goldenrod, nagoonberry, elderberry. I taste nagoons and salmon, kelp and blueberries. I smell and taste the salty air the salty water. I stand motionless in the purity of silence. This poem should have no words. Thank you. When I interviewed Larry Hills, the commercial fisherman who was caught in the trawl net uh, for the book The Night Orion Fell, sometimes he would pause for seven seconds or 11 and a few times for 15. And it's amazing to sit in a room with another person in utter silence and just wait for him to come up with the next words of his being trapped in the lines, trapped on the net reel, and what he, and then beginning to talk again. I'm going to end with two slightly lighter ones. Two of my three grandchildren <clears throat> really like to go fishing. The third one probably does too, but she's a little young. Reed, he's three years old. He catches Dolly Varden. He catches halibut. He fishes off the bridge over his creek for pinks and cohos. He fishes off the edge of the stairway. With a bobber, not a lure, he says. He wants to be a fisherman when he grows up. Nora's halibut. She was four years old when she caught her first halibut. Reed caught many dollies by then. No competition, just the joy of children fishing in the rolls and curls of Icy Strait. Thank you.
Oh, <clears throat> thank you very much, Abigail. Beautiful, beautiful presentation. Now, moving forward, our next performer will be Balika Hawkinson. Balika Hawkinson was born and raised on Kodiak Island. Both parents fished around Kodiak, dad in the winter, longlining and jigging, mom in the summer, seining. Balika rebelled in middle school by set netting in Uganic, but eventually came back to seining, mostly with her mom on the Renaissance. In school, most of her favorite teachers were summer fishermen. So Balika went to school to become an educator and then rapidly realized that she liked teaching. She became stingy for her summers with her own children and retired from fishing just before her first daughter was born 19 years ago. 10 years ago, her family moved from Kodiak to Seattle where she teaches middle school science. As often as she is able, Balika heads home to Kodiak to be surrounded by the ocean and the people and culture that she calls home. Please welcome Balika Hawkinson to the stage. So in a funny twist of fate, I guess it's called, um, I also am in love with the coelacanth. Um, and there's a really great book called The Fish, Fish Don't Exist, which is about the coelacanth. Amazing book. Um, in another weird twist, my husband's name is Fish. <laughs> well, his name's Sven, but everyone in my town calls him Fisherman or Fish. And he was the one who opened the package um, in, entitled with the book entitled Fish Don't Exist, and he was very confused. <laughs> Good, really good book, though. Um, anyways, I'm here to talk not about um, being a fisherman, but about learning how to not be a fisherman anymore. Um, and it's been 10 years now since I've lived outside of Alaska. In those years, I've had time to get some perspective. I was raised by two fishermen. My dad dig jigged for cod on a little wooden Hansen double ender named the Lindy Two. My mom ran the salmon center of the Renaissance, often with an all-girl crew. As a kid, I had my choice of fisheries and fishing options, but never considered doing anything but fishing during the summer. That said, I had the fishing life figured out. The non-fishing life, though, not so much. I've been slapped in my face with my own ignorance many times. It's been harder for me to learn how to not be a fisherman than it was to become one. Um, let me give you a few examples. This is a tale in five parts. Part one of learning how to not be a fisherman. There were things that I learned embarrassingly late, often all at once, and I'm not talking about the little things that I learned at age five or so, and I'm still reminded of to this day by giddy family friends, like playgrounds are not called crab pots, even though crab pots can be playgrounds, or at least they were at our homestead in Uganic on the west side of Kodiak Island. Also, a bucket display at the local hardware store is not a good place to pull down your pants and pee. <laughs> Not all buckets are for peeing in. I'm talking about things I learned much later, like not everyone, ha not everyone has a salmon season. When I went off to college and I sat next to a cute little thing from West Virginia who wanted to be a statistician like my mom and dad, and my head went blank <laughs> about where to go from there and what to say next, so I decided to ask her what she did during her salmon season. <laughs> And as soon as it was out of my mouth, I realized it was a completely nonsensical question. 
But the concept of seasons as periods of time in which one transitions between things was so ingrained in my mind that I couldn't conceive, conceive of how else to even think about time in another more normal sense. I acknowledge how ridiculous it is that it took me 18 years for this to sing it, sink in. Regardless, I continued to have these little ignorance awareness experiences. Next lesson that sticks with me, one does not necessarily use extra tufts to dress up an outfit. An outfit. I mean, in Kodiak we did. We'd wear extra tufts to prom and we'd wear them out to dinner. At my best friend's wedding in the little Russian Orthodox church in the village of Old Harbor, all the bridesmaids and the bride with their long white dress wore extra tufts. Extra tufts are an explic inexplicable symbol of identity and Alaskanness. Extra points for shiny dried on salmon scales. I <laughs> yes. I lasted a year at Smith College, a small all-girls liberal arts college in Massachusetts. I never felt at home chit-chatting about summer camps and ski vacations. I craved the salty smell of the ocean and a broad horizon line to give me that sense of smallness that made me feel calm. I felt a sense of smallness at Smith College, but the smallness was because I was out of place and ignorant of the way the world worked, not small as a part of the land, the resources, and the community. I had no common language with the girls at Smith, and I felt clunky, disconnected, and terribly blue-collar. In my world, being blue-collar was a point of pride, but not so much in the East Coast college world. That year ended with a summer of salmon fishing that grounded me, but I knew that I wasn't going back to Smith. I finished up college far away, but in a place that felt more like home, the little fishing town of St. Andrews in Scotland, that felt real to me. As a plus, it got out in May, so I, could, I wouldn't lose my place on my mom's boat for reds. School buildings were intermixed with markets, pubs, and coffee shops. But I still found myself continuing my schooling, learning how to not be a fisherman. For example, dirt under your fingernails and muddy sweatpants are not symbols of prosperity everywhere you go. The posh London boy who followed me around for a while asked me a lot of questions. I realize now that he was just trying to figure me out. Aren't you bothered by the dirt under your fingernails? No, I was gardening. Hmm, aren't you going to wash your hands? <laughs> it hadn't even occurred to me to dig the dirt out from under my nails. It was my second year at St. Andrews. My girlfriends and I lived in a sweet little flat down by the sea with a spacious yard. I gleefully grew herbs and weeded to keep myself busy, to connect with my home and my land and do what I always did, grow stuff, make stuff, be self-sufficient. I was intending to keep getting my fingers dirty, so why bother with the nails? He stared at me intently as I struggled with figuring out how to respond, and I think I tried to explain my reasoning. I don't remember, honestly. Eventually, I stopped answering his calls, avoided his pub and his posh London accent and his probing stares and his questions, and I realized I didn't want to understand where he was coming from. I found my people eventually. They were the, the locals, the brick mason, musician, the down-to-earth Scots, the international students, the gravedigger who spent his time uh, birding, the Bosnian refugees. We weren't outcasts. We just weren't bothered by a little mud under our fingernails. In my journey I, to learn how to not be a fisherman, I realized that there are certain lessons that I'm glad I learned early. My mom worked very hard creating a sense of family amongst the four crew members on her 52-foot saner. Three months on a boat with people who understand each other and enjoy being around each other was the key to sanity for all of us. I wasn't about to unlearn this lesson. Chapter two. 
There are things I find myself unlearning slowly without even realizing it. Things like, it occurred to me the other day that when I need a screwdriver or a knife, I have to dig around for them. I was always tripping over them in our Kodiak house. Also, I no longer have a Victorinox in the car, in the house, in my purse, and on the porch. It feels a little strange to think about carrying around knives in a place like Seattle. Secondly, I've known for a lot of years that the key to a fisherman's heart is not candy bars, but fresh fruit. Soft ones, like nectarines or cherries that don't travel well. When I was the boat cook, I guarded the fresh stuff fiercely, shook my head at the greenhorn who tossed perfectly good wrinkly carrots in the bin. I was visiting friends at a setnet site in Uganic a few years back. I'd brought a big bag of fresh stuff, as usual, and while cutting strips of red peppers for a salad, I looked over at my friend Aaron, picking the pepper tops out that I'd thrown in the compost bin. Perfectly good pepper bits. I had a flashback of myself doing the same thing with the greenhorn on the Renaissance. Apparently, three years in Seattle had turned me into a greenhorn. I'm, I'm sure I'll keep realizing the ways that I'm secretly and slowly changing, but the last thing that I seem to be slowly unlearning is how to handle the booms in the bus. As a kid, a poor fishing year would mean that we'd live in the bus that we drove from Kodiak to Costa Rica for those precious winter months that we got off the island. A good season would mean we would fly. Now I get paid once a month, whether I have a week where I do some awesome teaching or whether I prove a complete failure at discipline, that, that week does not change my paycheck. We plan our vacations like the rest of America, based on when we feel we can afford it, not a mentality of, I have to get off the island, I don't care what it takes. Part three, there are things that can't be unlearned, and I don't plan on trying to unlearn. Solitude, we can handle it. Don't have Wi-Fi or fancy electronics, no problem. We have beaches and rocks and hills wherever we go and the ability to go macro. Checking out and finding wildness anywhere is something that can bring us right back to our quiet places. Snow, ice, slush, and don't feel like doing the thing, just dress for it. Don't know how to change the oil or remember where the alternator is or what it does, that's what manuals are for. Just because some people are paid massive amounts of money to fix things doesn't mean it can't be learned. But the most important thing I learned growing up as a fisherman, the kid of fishermen, and in a fishing town, community matters. How we spend our money matters. Farming, fishing, those industries that not only drive small town economies but keep people tied to, re to realizing the importance of the land and the environment, these are our hope for the future. Chapter four. If I can't actually be a fisherman anymore, how can I make sure that my kids grow up with the same values? As I reflect on the way that fishing has become a way for people to feel, to feel tied to place, I realize how important it is to provide this to my own children. We moved to Seattle when our girls were in second and fifth grade, so I was worried when my 15-year-old daughter got a job at Cape Uganic for a couple weeks one summer. I tormented her with lists and piles of supplies. You need wristers, you need large rubber, rubber bands for your boots, um, books she had to bring. I was mortified and worried to think of her as the new crew member who might tuck her rain gear into her boots or put her fingers in between the skiff and the tender. But when I got my first letter from her, I knew the circle was unbroken. Her favorite summer moments, the smell and the look of fresh caught salmon, laying in the grass and watching the clouds drift by, not having a phone, puking multiple times over the side of the skiffs in between sets, but surviving, the 80s station playing a steady stream of Snoop Dogg, dancing in sweatpants under the disco ball in the cabin kitchen, which was, by the way, a buoy covered in tinfoil. The kids are all right. I teach eighth graders in Seattle, 
And when I think of the summers that many of these kids have, I feel, feel mostly sad. iPads, Minecraft, day camps, organized activities. Maybe crab pots are the perfect playgrounds. Chapter five, um, scrap those first four chapters. Maybe once you're a fisherman, you can never not be a fisherman. When I was having babies, I read all the birth books, but one specific one resonated. This particular book, Hypnobirthing, talked about natural pain relief through visualizing one's happy place and to practice it daily as a workout for the big event. There are still days when I pull out the image trapped in my psyche now and visit the place that makes me feel most at peace, even though now I'm living in a big city. It's August 15th, 2 a.m. in Katoy Bay, my muscles are strong from a summer of working. The sound of the engine hums gently and deeply in the background. I'm in my rain gear, collapsed on a perfectly coiled cork stack, staring up at the Perseid meteor showers on the way to Anchorage. My boots rest on the leads. I smell the familiar warm, musty rain gear scent and the salty brininess of the Seine. Around me, other boats also head towards the dark cove, and the yellow cabin lights around me shine dimly into the dark night. I feel both small and big at the same time. The tote of fishing gear will stay in my basement, and even though I've popped the last salmon scale off my extra tufts, I still feel that familiar sense of invincibility when I slip them on when snow, when snow falls, because even though I'm no longer a fisherman, those lessons about life, nature, and community are a part of my story, my values, and that's what counts. Thank you. Thank you very much, Balika. I tell you, I, I've spent some time in Kodiak myself, and I'm sure you've enjoyed the King Crab Festival. <laughs> and I've also almost been arrested for lighting fireworks off at the fuel dock. Um, not recommended, not recommended. Well, as well-planned as every fishing trip goes, there always seems to be, uh, to be a bit of a hitch in the giddy-up. And unless we have a David Bean hanging back in the curtains there, I'm going to take this opportunity to fill the void with a couple pieces I have for, uh, of my own. Um, now, not to give away too much of myself, I've been dragging my knuckles across the decks of commercial fishing boats for 30 years. As I always say, from the Bering Sea to Bodega Bay, California, and just about everywhere in between. Now, working on the deck of a Bering Sea crab boat will test every fiber of your being. To be 100% present all of the time will simply drive you insane. The screaming of the hydraulics, the winches, the pots slamming onto the steel launcher, slamming into the pots along the deck with them. These are things you have to find a way to escape from. You have to be able to go somewhere where you can be with yourself and essentially anywhere but where you are at that moment. Now this piece I appropriately title The Escape. The ocean is cold and the wind will not rest. This season will demand nothing but your best. You hear it in the rigging, 
You feel it in your bones. You've been here before, you know the routine. It's time for escape. It's time for the dream. A touchdown, three-pointer, the long home run ball. Always the hero, they cheer from afar. I've been all these things, the dreams keep me sane. Leaving myself for as long as allowed, the cold and fatigue are kicking my ass. Feeling the pain and ignoring the fear, wishing myself anywhere but here. The days don't stay long and the nights never end. It's just me and this ocean and some of my friends. What a perfect career for a monkey like me. They say no bananas and I can't find a tree. The dreams that I have, they're not all about me. I dream of my family and all those I love. I dream of my daughters. I dream of my son. I dream of the summer and all of the fun. Alone with myself on this cold frozen deck, I dream of my life. I dream of the check. The moon shines so bright on this clear, cloudless night. I dream of full pots and crabs on the bite. The problem with dreaming is that's just what it is. The wind is still blowing. The ice is still cold. I stand with my brothers by my side, thick and thin. We look at each other and dream of the end. Now, commercial fishing will inspire dreams that no matter how far-fetched seem possible. It draws men to the sea. Many men aspire to move up, own their own boat, and work, continually work within the industry. Some men are working so hard because they want to find a way out. I definitely was of the latter. Now, one of the biggest goals was to find some sort of peace on dry land. I tell you, being on the ocean for so many years makes it a little tough to assimilate yourself to dry land. You're out there risking your life, giving everything you have, leaving it all on the deck. And I tell you, it truly is a life and death industry. And then returning from home, returning home, you have all this pent up energy, everything once again that you've been dreaming of doing when you got home, you feel such a sense of urgency to make it happen. And more often than not, this energy will lead you awry. This piece I call peace on dry land. Although I was born right here on dry land, I cannot find peace or work for my hands. From the first salmon I picked from the net to the last pot I slam to the deck. The waters I work provide protection and peace. Yet the demons I leave at the dock in the light 
patiently wait for my return to dry land in the night. Sitting close by my shoulder as I take that first drink, the, the demons of dry land, now one on each side. Once back on the beach, there's a fight deep inside. The attitude it takes to survive on the sea does not serve me well on the land with the trees. Pour me a double, I know what I need. A Disneyland dad was the best I could do. The struggle within sends priorities askew. The shorter the stay, the less damage done. This stay on dry land can be so much fun. Yet what is that thing that sends things awry? It could be the liquor or just too much salt on my fries. Depends who you ask, but I'm not a bad dude. A fight in the bar, another black eye. But back on the ocean, I'm a hell of a guy. Pull the chains off and let those pots fly. These 30-foot seas make me feel safe deep inside. It's the demons of dry land that give me such fright. Yet home is what I fight for and what I work so damn hard. My days on the deck have now come to an end. I search for adventure to fill that void in my life. The demons of dry land still close by my side. It's time once again to give dry land a crack. Don't go so crazy and cut life some slack. The ocean can't save you. You're too old to go back. One thing's for sure, we never give up. Even when we fail, we get right back up. So even if it takes the rest of my life, I will search for peace on dry land until the day that I die. All right, well, I'm just going to mention a couple things here as we move into our first break of the evening. Immediately following our performers here at the Liberty Theater, we will have the Poetry Slam. Now, I believe, Doug, this is available to everybody. You, just, you, don't, you don't have to, to believe it, to, to be a, a, a performer. Um, anybody out there, if you feel the, uh, the, the need. Now, there are a, certain, a few parameters wrapped around this. It can only be 60 seconds. It must include three colors, three sounds, three smells, a voice, which I'm not really what that, you know, maybe that can be your own, but it needs to have a voice. Someone needs to speak, and it has to be about fishing. And once again, this will take place immediately following our performers here at the Liberty's Theater. So I'm going to let you loose for a bit. We'll be right back here at 6 o'clock for our next performer, me. <laughs> that was Fisher Poets Abigail Culkin, Balika Hawkinson, and Dan Kaiser, recorded at the Liberty Theater in Astoria, Oregon on Saturday, February 25th. 2023. Well, that's it. This one's in the tote. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is written and produced by Brad Wartman. 
The theme music for this episode is courtesy of Mark Allen Lovewell and Molly Canole. If you'd like to appear on or have comments about the show, please send an email to thefisherpoetryarchive at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to haul the latest episodes into your net. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is available via our podcast host, Spotify, as well as Apple, Google, and Amazon. You can listen to our other podcast episodes, watch our YouTube videos, and join our community by going to thefisherpoetryarchive.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Come all young sailormen, listen to me. I'll sing you a song of the fish in the sea. Blow your winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound to the southern, so steady she goes. 